Always. Well, welcome, everybody. Um, I'm delighted to see you all. I've got a bunch of stuff here, which I'm extremely excited about. Uh, we're talking today about the, um, the covenant with David. I'd, I love this part of biblical history, and I love this um, uh, the strands of Christian eschatology that are connected with it. I can even feel a diagram coming on, hence the whiteboard. Um, and it's one, of, it's, it's one of the coolest family trees ever. Um, and I can still remember the first... I've, I've probably shown this to some of you before. Um, I can, I can um, still remember the first time I realised this was what was going on. And I, just, I sort of sat there at my desk in England, sort of shaking slightly, realising something quite remarkable is going on. And then you think, of course it is, because the Lord is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to whoever he pleases. Anyway, on that note, let's pray to him, and then we're going to get started um, thinking about the covenant with David. Let's pray together. Merciful Father, we're so grateful to you for your abundant kindness and goodness to us in every way. We ask, please would you watch over us? Please would you open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your law? Please would you teach us and shape our hearts and our minds so that we may see Jesus here? And may we be made more like him, for we worship him, even now as we pray in his name. Amen. Okie dokie. So, we've been talking about Christian eschatology. We have been doing this the right way. That is to say, not by jumping into Revelation 20 or by getting hold of a copy of the late great planet Earth. But by starting, I have actually got a copy of the late great planet Earth. We are going to have a session on the late great planet Earth at some point. Don't worry. Have you, hands up if you've read the late great planet Earth. Come on, be honest. There we are. Recovering dispensationalists. Um, uh, Lord bless them. But we want to try and do things differently. We want to give uh, the whole of the Bible a hearing and see what God is doing in the whole of human history. And that's what we've been doing. So we've been going before and apart from creation initially. Then Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and now we come to David. The covenant with David is the latest in a succession of interconnected, though distinct, uh, moments or periods or eras in God's unfolding relationship with his people. Incidentally, it's very strange, isn't it, that people talk about the new covenant and the old covenant singular. I always want to say, which old covenant? There are lots of old covenants. And it's the distinctions between those older covenants that actually gives a lot of depth to Christian theology and particularly Christian eschatology, the doctrine of history. And the covenant with David introduces the specific and new element of a king for the people of God. And so I've got a question for you just to get you warmed up. No Bibles allowed. This is a, uh, a no Bible exam question. You've got a box there at the top of the page. Who were the first four kings of Israel? Well, don't shout it out. Please write them down. Who were the first four? You need a pen? Do you want a pen? You've got a pen? Do you want a pen? You've got a pen. Please write down who were the first four kings of Israel. Uh, if you're at home, you may do this. You may talk to each other. You may, but don't talk to each other here. You talk to each other at home. I can't stop you talking at home, obviously. Legislation should always be um, uh, accommodated to what's enforceable, 
And since I can't realistically enforce that, I think probably it's not a good idea to try and stop you talking to the person you're sitting on the couch next to. We write down, who were the first four kings of Israel? And when I um, see you all put your pens down, the exam will have concluded. And let's see. Who wants to try and answer this question? Who were the first four kings of Israel? Nobody. Have you all learned by now that these are always trick questions? Go on, Mr. Barnes, you had, you had a, a thought for us. Come on. Uh, I have Saul, David, Solomon, and Jeroboam. Saul, David, Solomon, and Jeroboam. Hands up if you also had Saul, David. <laughs> Mr. Pastor Neil is like, no, he's seen this before. He saw this one coming. Like, uh, this guy used to play baseball, right? He can pick a knuckleball before it even leaves the, the pitcher's hand. Go on then, Miss Duke. So, I know that the kingdom split into after Solomon, but I don't remember what those two kings were, but I agree with the first three. You're, you're happy with the first three, and maybe the, other, the fourth one is Rehoboam, not Jeroboam. Okay, well, he was a king in Judah, and Jeroboam was in the north. So, if Mr. Barnes is as right as most people ever are when studying this question. The names of the first four kings of Israel were Abimelech. He was crowned king in Judges 9, verse 6. Yeah. Wow. Then Saul. Then Ishbosheth. In 2 Samuel 2, who's crowned king of Israel when David is crowned king of Judah. And he reigns for two years. David is crowned king of Israel in 2 Samuel 5. So the first four kings of Israel are Abimelech, Saul, Ishbosheth, David. Now, why do I mention that? The reason I mention that is because we pay too little attention to the minute details of Scripture. And we are often coaxed along in our thinking about Christian life and even Christian theology by traditions which have enough truth in them to not so much do damage but obscure from us some of the richness and depth of biblical revelation and biblical teaching. And one of the first things I want to share with you this evening, we're still under the heading of the introduction, is why is it such a big deal that Abimelech and Ishbosheth were there, as well as Saul, before King David. To put it another way, what was wrong with Abimelech? Just turn with me to the book of Judges. Judges 9, verse 6. This is roughly where we left off last week, remember, in the era of the Judges. This is during the period of the Mosaic Covenant, when the promises of God are being fulfilled or not fulfilled because of Israel's rebellion by their inheritance or not inheritance of the land of Israel. Judges 9 verse 6 is at the conclusion really of the Gideon narrative and Abimelech is Gideon's son. Abimelech means my father is the king. Melech means king, Av means father and I, Avi, Melech, I means my. And uh, Gideon called him this in an attempt to cement his legacy by 
creating a dynasty. The thing that distinguishes kings from other forms of leadership up to this point in scripture is that when the king dies, who becomes king after him? His son. So when Gideon named his son Abimelech, what he's really doing is saying, I'm the, you know, he turned down the kingship earlier in this section, Judges 6 through 9, but then he kind of thinks, well, maybe that's not such a bad idea after all. He calls his son, my father is the king. And so his son grows up being called son of the king, in effect. And Judges um, 9 verse 6, after he's put to um, death, um, all the other, you know, 70-odd, not quite 70 brothers, um, uh, so, no, sorry, 70, yeah, that's right, 70 uh, sons of Jeroboam. Um, uh, verse 6, all the leaders of Shechem came together and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. And thus was fulfilled the search that began in Genesis 1. Remember what Genesis 1 is about? Genesis 1 begins, actually, the search for a king. Let us make man in our own image and let them do what? Pastor Neil's on fire tonight. That wasn't so difficult, right? Um, Let them rule. The whole of human history then can be construed as the search for a king, a man who is a king, to rule over the created order, or perhaps for men and women, plural, to rule over the created order in the way that God would have them rule. And so you've got the creation of humanity in Genesis 2 and end of Genesis 1. And then you've got this kind of tawdry history that we kind of got to in Judges last week. And we're thinking, when's the promise of real kingly rule going to be fulfilled? And here it is with Abimelech, the first king. And we've arrived, haven't we? And the answer is no. We have not arrived. Because... Abimelech is not the right man to be the king. Enter the diagram that I have just been itching to share with you. I'm going to show you why Abimelech was not the right man to be the king. By drawing a family tree of the whole of humanity, minus a few people, um, from Adam all the way down to where we got to last week. So you ready? I, uh, this microphone's going to need to come with me over here. If I, if I talk into it, Aaron, is that acceptable for the, the Zoomers? I don't want to have rebels in the Zooming ranks. Okay. So we're going to start, and you might, you might want to flip your paper over if you want to copy this. Um, so where we're going to go is, first man's name was, thank you, okay, uh, Adam. And then there's some stuff after him. I told you I was going to be missing some people out, okay? Um, well, I'm going to. Um, let's put Noah up here. Um, Abraham well why would we focus on Abraham well we know we've got to focus on Abraham because Abraham is the way in which God's going to sort out the Adam problem correct yeah Um, he's picking up the threads from uh, Adam and you know that Abraham's offspring are going to be like the sand of the sea and like what else stars in the heavens and you know because Genesis 1 stars do what they rule heavenly lights rule stars rule so Abraham's offspring are going to be like rulers. And you think, well, that's great. We're expecting Abraham's offspring to be rulers. And so we're going to go through Abraham's offspring. And of course, Genesis is really the story of Abraham struggling to have offspring. From one perspective, it's like this big, long soap opera of everything going, everything that could go wrong with family life goes wrong in Genesis. Abraham, talk me down through the family tree of Abraham. Abraham, 
Isaac. Jacob. Jacob. Now, um, the, the kingly theme emerges at the end of Jacob's life when he pronounces his blessings on his, how many sons? Twelve sons. So let's have the twelve sons of, of uh, Jacob, and then we'll remember where he uh, pronounced the blessings on them. So somebody give me the twelve sons of uh, Jacob in order. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Levi. Judah. Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, that one, Zebulun, Joseph, and, and Benjamin. And how many of you actually could do that? Because you've heard the Jamie Souls song, right? What were the names of the patriarchs? That's how I learned it. Yeah, is that how you did it? Right, now, excellent. Now, somebody turn to Genesis 49 with me. Turn to Genesis 49. And tell me if you would be so kind, what's going on? Well, I'll tell you what's going on here. This is Jacob on his deathbed, blessing his sons and prophesying about his son's future, futures. And he prophesies about which one of them is going to be the king. Which one is going to be the king? Judah. Judah. How do you know? (laughs) Yeah, because it more or less says, hey, you're going to be a king forever. Look with me at Genesis 49, verse 8. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone down, stooped up, you crouched like a lion, yada, yada, yada. Verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from... Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And then there's something about a donkey or a colt of a donkey, which might remind you of somebody, yes? So where we've got to in the narrative of Genesis, in our search for a king, is the unshakable conviction that it's going to be this guy, correct? Judah. And so what we might want to do is to zoom in on Judah a little bit and think, well, what's his family tree like? Um, Judah, um, you might think that he himself would be a good candidate for the kingship. Why would Judah not be a good candidate uh, for the kingship? Is not the firstborn, correct? When you, when you zoom in, you start to look at Judah's offspring. Turn back with me to Genesis 38. And you start to discover what kind of a man Judah was and why you might not want him as the king of the people of God. Remember? <laughs> Judah had three sons whose names were Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Do you remember what happened to them? Yeah. So um, Ur was wicked in the sight of the Lord. So what happened, basically? I've got to step back a little bit. Ur married this lady, Tamar. But Ur was wicked in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord put him to death. 
not able to produce children, didn't produce children, the Lord put him to death. So what's supposed to happen to Tamar now? What happened to Tamar? Anticipating later biblical revelation in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Right, exactly. You're supposed to, uh, another man within the family is supposed to marry her. And so Tamar is given to Onan in marriage. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his legally. And so he uh, spilled his semen on the ground, refused to uh, give her a child. And so the Lord put him to death also. At this point, Tamar is thinking, well, mm, this is a bit awkward. Where, where am I going to find a husband from? Next problem is uh, Onan, Sheila. Why can't Sheila be um, uh, Tamar's husband? Well, he doesn't want him to be... That's the, the problem that arises next. Uh, the, uh, the, this time, Ur is a little kid. Not going to make a great... Sheila, sorry. Sheila, thank you, Nicole. Fixing my... Remembering things. So Sheila's like, I don't know, 12 or something. Not really great husband material yet. So Tamar's like, okay, I'll wait. And she waits and waits and waits. And then when Sheila grows up and she sees that um, the youngest son is not given to her in marriage, she realizes she's been rejected. And what does she do? Um... Verse 14, uh, she wrapped up, oh sorry, verse 15, she, I'm, I'm getting, um, I need to go back a little bit. Um, verse 13, uh, she uh, hears that her father-in-law is going to Timnah to shear his sheep. She took off her widow's garment and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance of Enayim, which is on the way to Timnah, for she saw that Sheila had grown up and she had not been, he'd not been, uh, she'd not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, so Judah's walking along the road, sees his daughter-in-law wearing a veil, doesn't recognize her. He thinks she is what? Prostitute. Because she's covered her face. And so she said, well, um, he propositioned her, in effect. In consequence of which, she became pregnant. Now, I'm not going to read the whole of this chapter to you, but basically what happens is, in effect, let's just get back to the diagram. Tamar becomes pregnant. Judah hears about it and is like, well, this is really outrageous and immoral. She should be put to death. Um, Like guys everywhere. No, not like guys everywhere. That's a mistake to say that. But the temptation of men who are in a position of power everywhere uh, to blame the people whom they've exploited. So really what you're looking for perhaps is somebody who's not going to be given power and blame the people whom he's exploited, but he's going to receive power and seek to serve people who have been exploited by others, the weak and the vulnerable. Can you see how Judah is, if anything, a kind of anti-Jesus in his behavior here? But Genesis 38, um, all this gets kind of um, untangled. She re- he realizes that this, his daughter-in-law is actually in the right and uh, in the end, she has two twins whose names are Perez 
Perez and Sarah. Right. So let's put them on. Now let's look more closely at these guys. Because if you think that Judah is the kingly tribe, it looks like one of these two is the first eligible candidate for king. Judah can hardly meet the description. So let's look. Which one is it going to be? Well, you've got a bit of confusion in the birth. When she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on it, saying, this one came out first, but as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out and she said, what a breach you've made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. And afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread and he was Zerah. So who's the firstborn? It's actually Perez, even though he sort of snuck in ahead. It reminds me of those, um, if you ever watched uh, uh, motor racing, like Formula One racing, you know, it's like being overtaken on the final turn, you know, <laughs> by, I don't know whether that's a really apt illustration, never having gone through childbirth, but having witnessed three, it, it, actually, it's not really like that, is it? It's not really like that at all. So let's retract that. So Perez, Perez then, is the first eligible man to be king of Israel. So why is Perez not going to be king of Israel? The answer, again, is found in the scriptures, this time in Deuteronomy 23. Zoom 4 to Deuteronomy 23. And verse 2, where we see why Perez cannot realistically serve as king of Israel. Deuteronomy 23 verse 2 says, No one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord. That is to say, somebody who's born, let's say, to a prostitute who happens to be the the daughter-in-law of the guy who goes into her, that would be an immoral union. He may not enter the assembly of the Lord, even down to the 10th generation. None of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. It's quite hard to be king of the people into whose assembly you're not allowed to enter especially given what we're going to see about kingship later on, how it's, you're supposed to be a model for the people and teach the law and exemplify the law to the people. But this is still the kingly line. So what you really want to know is, well, if Perez is the line of the kings, but nobody born from his line can enter the assembly of the Lord until the 10th generation, who's the guy who's in the 10th generation from Perez? And the answer to that is found, of course, in my favourite book of the Bible. Anybody know what my favourite book of the Bible is? Ruth. Turn to Ruth chapter 4. It's where we got to last week. Numbers is kind of in the top five. It's kind of Ruth, Judges, and then it's a toss-up between sort of Numbers and you know, a few other bits and pieces. And remember what Ruth is all about. Well, Ruth is all about lots of things. Um, Boaz is depicted as a kind of anti-Judah in the sense that whereas Judah refused to give the son-in-law, so it refused to give the son to the daughter-in-law, refused to give Shelah to Tamar, Boaz, though he's old enough probably to be her father, gives himself to Ruth as the kinsman redeemer, as the kind of substitute husband, 
So he's an anti-Judah, and Judah's an anti-Jesus, which must make Boaz a type of Christ, which is why he's called the Redeemer. One of the reasons why he's called the Redeemer. So one of the threads going through the book of Ruth is that here is a man who will lay down his life and his wealth and his future for a, a bride who's lost her husband and for a man who's his kinsman, Elimelech, who's um, the husband of Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law. Okay, so you get to the end of this, and basically, end of Ruth chapter 4, they're married. Boaz is married to Ruth, and you've all read the book of Ruth. You've, hands up if you've not read the book of Ruth. Don't you dare put your hand up. Right, so, so you've all read the book of Ruth. And you know that they get, um, at the end of the book of Ruth, you've got Boaz, who gives um, a child to Ruth, and the, the child is called what? Obed, very good, well remembered. You just redeemed yourself from that four king thing. So like, well done. Okay, so um, Boaz gave birth to a, a, a son who's called Obed, and Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David. And then you get, just randomly, chapter 4, verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. Well, what? What are you talking about, Perez? Why is Perez such a big deal? Oh, you know why Perez is such a big deal? Because the end of the book of Judges says there's no king in Israel. Judges 21-25. The book of Ruth is the answer to the there's no king in Israel problem. And you all know what the last word of the book of Ruth is. David. But did you count the generations? These are the generations of Perez. Perez. Oh, that was loud. Fathered Hezron. Can you all read them out for me? I'm going to put this up here. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab, is that right? Then it's Narshon, Salmon, Boaz, Obed, Jesse. Is that right, David? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. David is the first eligible man in the entire history of the world that we know about from the pages of Scripture who can be king. Now, why can't Elimelech? Well, because the whole of the period of the book of Judges Sorry, not, not Elimelech, Abimelech. Abimelech can't because he's from the wrong tribe and he's obviously too early because the period of the book of Judges is during that ten generations, which I here highlighted. Saul is from the wrong tribe, Benjamin. So is his son, Ishbosheth. So those first three kings aren't going to work. David is the first man who's eligible, except there's a problem. There's one remaining glitch in this remarkable story of God's providence to bring Israel a king. And you have to, to find it, you have to look back at Deuteronomy 23, verse 3. Just look with me. Deuteronomy 23, 3. Verse 2 says, no one born of an immoral union can enter the assembly of the Lord. Verse 3 says what? Pastor Neil. No Moabite can enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. Now, why is that a problem? Very good, um, uh, Miss Bennett. Ruth is a Moabite. And where's Ruth on here? Dum, bum, 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 bum. She's David's great-grandmother. She's a Moabite. Which is terrible. Which means that David can't enter the assembly of the Lord. No, it doesn't. What it means is that in the book of Ruth, 
you have not one substitute spouse, but two. Boaz is the sacrificial servant-hearted man who fulfills the law by marrying the widow of Elimelech, his kinsman. He substitutes for Elimelech. But who's Elimelech's widow? Naomi, which is how he starts in chapter 4. Go and read Ruth chapter 4. Now, don't do it now. And and you're like, I've got to read the book of Ruth, which, of course, you do have to go and do. This is this evening, but just not yet. Um, The beginning of Ruth chapter 4, the the other kinsman redeemer who's introduced there thinks that the woman who's being offered is Naomi because that's what the law would say. But what Boaz perceives is that the spirit of the law, so to speak, requires children to be provided. Naomi's too old to have children. She says so in chapter one, but Ruth is not. And so Ruth steps in as a substitute for Naomi. So the child who is born is born, though biologically to Ruth, in terms of genealogy and legal title, she is Na- the, the child is actually Naomi's child, which is why it says in Ruth chapter four, just look back at me, Ruth chapter four, when the announcement is given, It does not say a son has been born to Ruth. It says, Ruth 4, verse 17, the women of the neighbourhood gave him a name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi. Right. Ruth substituting for Naomi, Boaz, Substituting for Elimelech. So the reason why David has got to be the king of Israel is because he really is now. He is genuinely eligible. He fulfills all the requirements. And as far as scripture is concerned, he's the first guy, after Jacob at least, who is eligible to be king of this people. And you might think, why didn't you have a king before that? Well, there's not so many people to be king of. (laughs) There might be other reasons as well. Now, why did I tell you all that? Partly because it just blows my mind that you have over four or five different books of the Bible, there are other bits woven in from other books we could have gone to, a narrative where every single piece is in place. And I remember this from when I was a younger Christian, your kind of age, and struggling for a period of time with questions about the trustworthiness of Scripture. And I got my first copy of Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. I I turned eagerly to the stuff about the authority of Scripture, expecting to find some kind of knockdown, extrinsic logical argument about why we could trust Scripture. And I didn't find anything of the sort. I was really disappointed. Because what Calvin talks about is the character of Scripture itself. The character, Scripture itself testifies to its divine origin by the breathtaking intricacy and detail and precision which all somehow drives towards this Christ-centred goal which you've glimpsed here in like half a dozen passages from a few different places. But what it also highlights is not just the scripture itself but the sovereignty of God who is behind it and I think we learn something here about um, how God is going to bring Israel a king unexpectedly and through 
providences so far-reaching and complex and so woven into the tapestry of history. We're, We're not expecting somebody just to rock up unannounced. We're not expecting um, something disconnected from the fabric of history. We're expecting something, somebody intricately woven into the perfectly articulated scriptural narrative of the history of the world. And this might seem kind of obvious to us because we're so used to reading the Bible in a kind of Christocentric way. We're used to finding Christ on every page. I hope you are. But it's not at all to be taken for granted. There's no reason a priori why Jesus couldn't have just rocked up in the first century as though nobody had ever guessed that he was going to be coming along at all. Which is actually how a lot of people sadly do read the Bible. They sort of start with Matthew. Oh, here's Jesus. Like, what? We ought rather to expect, because of this kind of intricately woven narrative history, that same intricacy to be operative in the coming of Christ and in the continuing ministry of Christ. We'll get to this later on where we, where we look at the book of Acts and the, um, the ongoing work of Christ through the ages. Everything is complex and intricately woven together and it's not the sort of thing you can easily foresee beforehand but when you look back at it you can marvel at what God has done and I think we learn lessons about our history through that too so that takes us to a rather long introduction I know but you're used to forgiving me for long introductions now so I the risk of taking you for granted I think yeah you probably did expect that That takes us to the point where we're now thinking, okay, so King David, he's the man. And what is he going to teach us about history and particularly about the role of God's anointed king in history? And we're going to come to that with points one, two, two, three, and four for the rest of the day. Let me press pause there just for one second and see if there's any questions or comments or anything you, you want to throw into the mix at this stage. Anybody at home got anything? Yeah, Aaron. Um, nothing to do, but I have a question. So, yeah. As far as choosing sons go, um, David obviously chooses seventh, seventh, right? Um, yes. Okay. Eighth in First Chronicles, seventh in okay. um, First Samuel, if I recall. Is it that way around? Yeah, eighth. Yeah. Yeah, the there's this so is it the firstborns always? And so there's two things going on here. There is a there's a cultural expectation which is embraced at certain points in scripture of the firstborn son being the heir. And that's what goes on with let's say Perez. Although with quirks. Um, But then there's another set of things going on as well where that expectation is subverted and the second-born son frequently takes precedence. And just think through the Bible about... um, I mean, in one sense, the the first and last Adam are like that. And if the first Adam is the one you'd expect to rule, but it's the last Adam who does, Jesus. Um, Think of all the messing around with... um, uh, 
Manasseh and Ephraim and Jacob swapping his hands over back and forth. And what's going on there? It's, there, is a, there is a playing around with this cultural convention. And I think part of it is linked to this issue of God using unexpected and, in the eyes of the world, weak and insignificant people to accomplish great things. Um, and, and you look at that, you look at sons, rejected sons, Jephthah. Go read the narrative of Jephthah in, in Judges. Magnificent, wonderful, heartbreaking in, in some ways, narrative. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's part of what's going on. It's not, it's, not a, it's not a simple appropriation of cultural custom. It's a, a subversion of it. Yeah. Are we okay just to jump on into King David and just to figure out what's going on here now? So remember, what, what's happening is um, that the monarchy emerges in this way against a backcloth of expectations about how, this being how God is going to order society and his relationships with his people. We're expecting a king. Took a bit longer than we expected, but we got there, and David's the first one. And so now when we look at what David did and the life of David in general, what we start to discover is that he shows us new things about the shape that history is going to take and what God's anointed king is going to do. And there are four things that I've highlighted here that I want to call our attention to, which add to the portfolio of jigsaw puzzle pieces, so to speak, that we've already built up from Abraham and Moses and Noah and so on and so forth. So first, the king is central, vitally important. He determines the destiny of the people under him. Second, he conquers his enemies. Third, he welcomes people from all nations to him. And fourth, in the prophetic and poetic literature of Scripture, and actually even in some of its narratives, especially with Sam, uh, Solomon, um, the king raises the possibility that God will himself in person be the king of the people of God, somehow, in some mysterious way. I want to go through these things. And what these are doing then is giving more depth and shape and texture to our expectations about the future by building up a picture of the history we're living in. You with me? So let's just consider for a second the first issue, the centrality of the king. To summarize this point, we might say this. Up to the era of the monarchy with King David, it was the people as a whole who were to whom what attention was called as the focus of God's relationship with people. But after the coming of the king, after the establishment of the monarchy, the individual person, the king himself, becomes a kind of representative through whom God relates to the people in some sense, and on account of whose status and behavior that relationship is established. And one way to see this is just ask yourself the simple question, who is God's son? If you look at Exodus chapter 4, and you can look this up if you want, Exodus 4.22, this is God uh, and Moses, and it's before the plagues, um, and uh, uh, the, the Lord is telling uh, Moses what to say to Pharaoh, 
In verse 22, he says, this is what you're going to say to Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. You've got to let my son go. So you can see what's happened here. Israel is, so to speak, being personified as an individual. And the individual is the son of God. God is the father. Israel is the son. What that means, by the way, is here we've got an Old Testament anticipation of the Christian doctrine of adoption. We are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. That's not an entirely New Testament's doctrine. It's, it has its, uh, it's anticipated right back here, and actually with Adam as well. Adam is described as the son of God at the beginning of Luke's gospel. So the son of God, the one who's in, in close relationship with the loving father. That's a biblical, whole Bible doctrine which is developed through scripture into the New Testament. But then you turn to 2 Samuel 7, and this is a text I considered just spending our entire time on 2 Samuel 7 today, but I uh, decided against it. This is the formal uh, statement of God's covenant with David. And maybe we will look at this at some point in the future, but for now, suffice it to say that uh, in this text, you find numerous uh, echoes of previous covenants. And one of the reasons I didn't want to spend too much time in this is because it's almost like you're expecting this now. Like, Chapter 7, verse 9, 2 Samuel 7, 9, um, second half of the verse, I will make for you a great name. Well, that's like just, just Genesis 12, isn't it? It's Abraham. As opposed to, we'll make a name for ourselves, Genesis 11, Tower of Babel. Yeah. Um, I will appoint a place, verse 10. Yeah. It's going to give them a land to live in, a place for them to worship in. Um, so you... Second Samuel 7, what God does in making this covenant with David is he grabs all the stuff from Adam and Noah and Moses, uh, Abraham and Moses, and sort of scoops it all up and puts it in the hopper and kind of turns the handle and out it comes David-shaped. But he's added some extra things. And one of the things he adds in verse um, uh, 14 is, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Who's the son? David. The king. It's as though, whereas previously God looks at the people and says, you're my son, he still says that, and we've got it in Hosea, it speaks of Israel as the son of God. But now it's, uh, let, me, let me put it in ways which will make it obvious where this trajectory is going. The people are the son because they're in relationship with the king who is the capital S son. Does that remind you of anybody? Yeah. On, on what grounds are we sons of God, male and female? We're, we're sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. We're sons, lowercase s, because of the son, uppercase s. So it is with the emergence of the monarchy in Israel. It's the dawning realization that you need a king to sort you out, to rule over you, to teach you, to direct you, to govern you to chastise you if necessary, to, to be the means by which your relationship with the Lord is mediated. And so you see that transition. And so fittingly, if you compare the history of Israel before the king to the history of Israel after the king, you start to notice that the sins of the people which get Israel into trouble in the days of the book of Judges are not highlighted so sharply in First and Second Kings. You ever notice this? Just remind yourself in, in the book of Judges. Turn to Judges um, 
Let's say Judges 3. This is before the king, yeah? This is 400 years before King David now, maybe 350 years. Judges 3, verse 7. This is the cycle of the judges, which I, I mentioned to you last week. Judges 3, 7. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And then you've got Othniel and he gets rid of Cushan Rishathayim and, and you've got peace for um, uh, uh, 40 years. And then Othniel dies. And then verse 12, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Who's doing evil? Who's the ones causing the problem? It's the people committing idolatry. You've got the same thing again, chapter 4, verse 1, before um, in, in the days of Deborah and Barak. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Can you see? It's, it's people, people, people sinning. Now turn to First Kings. This is in the era of the monarchy. 1 Kings 15. 1 Kings 15, verse 2. Well, verse 1. In the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abijam began to reign over Judah. He reigned for three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Machah, the daughter of Abishalom. And he walked in all of the sins that his father did before him. His heart was not wholly true to the Lord. Notice it's him. It's not the people. It's him. Now, obviously, the people and the king are going are to walk in lockstep for reasons that ought to be obvious and will become more obvious in, in a moment when we talk about Deuteronomy 17. Um, but it's as far as the scriptures are concerned, it is... The conduct of the king that really matters. If only you could get yourself a good king. And it looks like there might be one. Asa, verse 9. 20th year of Jeroboam, Asa began to reign over Judah. He reigned 41 years. His mother's name was Markah, the daughter of Abishalom. Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Got rid of all the cult prostitutes and stuff. He was a pretty decent king. Not perfect, but better. Um, But you roll on, verse 26. This is uh, Nadab. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 34, this is Asa, king of Judah. Sorry, and Basha, the, um, uh, the, the son of Ahijah. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Notice what's happen, happening. It's the king's faithfulness that is decisive. And what does the king's faithfulness, what ought it to consist in? What, what kind of man should the king be? We know that from the book of Deuteronomy, where we discover something about the relationship between the king and the Torah. This is a very famous passage, Deuteronomy 17, where Moses, and this this again highlights the interconnectedness of all these eras. This is during the days of Moses, before the conquest of the land, but he's looking ahead to the days of the kingship. And he's saying what kind of king you need to have. And um, Verse 14, we'll track back to there. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed do that. I mean, there's some restrictions on it. See, Moses is anticipating the monarchy, even though it's hundreds of years earlier. But what's he got to do? Verse 18, we'll just skip over the horses and wives stuff. I'll talk about that on Sunday, by the way. Probably talk about that on Sunday um, because we're in First Sam, uh, First Kings 10. And... Solomon has a bit of a problem with horses and wives and things. Anyway, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, 
that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, not arrogant, proud, self-aggrandizing, quite enjoying this status king, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right or the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and all his children in Israel. Can you see what the king has got to do? The king has got to take Moses' law and carry it forward with him and exemplify it and live in accordance with it and teach in accordance with it and lead in accordance with it so that the people of Israel are blessed by their God. And you just, if that's all you you knew, right, wouldn't you be thinking, all we need is have a king who's got the law written down that he keeps with him all the days of his life. If only Israel could find for themselves a king, preferably one in whom the law was perfectly embodied, who fulfilled the law, who filled it full of significance, kept every word of it, who loved it, who sang the Psalms. And remember, law, Torah means like the whole of Old Testament in some context. And isn't that what Jesus is like? We're, we're starting to realize first that the the, the destiny of the people of God hinges on their king and that therefore, secondly, we have to get ourselves a righteous king from somewhere. And if we can't find ourselves a righteous king, then we're going to be in trouble. And that's the problem, isn't it? Because all of the kings that Israel managed to find, even though some of them were great, like Jehu was great king and Josiah, great king, Hezekiah, David and even Solomon on his day, great kings and one or two others who were good men in some ways, all of them were still sons of Adam. They're still, they're trying to solve the Adam problem, but they've got the Adam problem. <laughs> what you really want is a, is a righteous king who is somehow a son of Adam, but somehow also semi-disconnected from Adam. Does that remind you of anybody? Can you, can you start to see the, the requirements that are being tacitly set in place for the kind of king that Jesus is? And his, on his faithfulness hinges the destiny of the people. So it's fascinating then. When you, when you read, um, let's say, Romans 5, right at the heart of Paul's theology, his comparison with Adam and Christ in Romans 5, he contrasts Adam's one sin with Christ's one act of righteousness. And Adam's one sin brought death and condemnation to everybody. Christ's one act of righteousness, his death on the cross, is a reference to brought justification, so, so righteousness and life to all who are in him. That, it's that one act of righteousness, which is the capstone of a perfectly righteous life, which is the hope for the people of God. We, we can't do it ourselves. We, we need a king like that on whose righteousness all our hope hangs. So however much we might talk, and rightly we talk about striving for faithfulness, striving for obedience, The growth of the kingdom rests on the righteousness of Jesus. And just think about the significance of that now. We've we've been buried in Old Testament complexity. But now think about the growth of the church. Think about the future of this congregation. Think about the church in America and the church in South America and the church in England, goodness gracious, uh, 
friend of mine's planting a church in Jersey, which is a little island, which is close enough to France to get good weather, but still sort of British. <laughs> um, think of all these churches everywhere. On what does their future depend? Because let me tell you, if it depends on us, I don't, know, I don't know even how we made it this far, but it doesn't depend on us. In that absolute fundamental sense, is Jesus' work. I'm thinking, this is illustration, I'm thinking of spending some time in the book of Acts at some point soon. I, I don't know whether soon or in the more distant future. Um, uh, and the book of Acts is best understood as all about the work that Jesus continued to do after his ascension. The way that, that um, Luke writes introduction, he says, in my former book, O, o Most Excellent Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. That's the Gospel of Luke. The implication is this is all the stuff that Jesus continued to do and to teach after his ascension into heaven. It's all about Jesus. This body is Jesus' body. It's, we're animated by him. This is what it means to live by faith and to live by grace. If, if we manage to keep going and keep growing as a church and to plant churches, it will be because Jesus... And that's all. And so what part do we play? Well, we are trying to be like Jesus, to be Christ-like members of his body. So, of course, in that sense, it it doesn't depend on us, but we we have a part to play by his grace. We work and labour and strive to be the means through which Jesus alone is building his kingdom. You with me? I make no apology for belabouring that point. All right, I've got 20 minutes to do three points. That's ages, isn't it? So I think we, we should press on. So, okay, so it's all about the king. And that conviction is underscored in the next big point I want to highlight about um, what the king does. The king conquers the enemies of the people of God. And for this, uh, this point is most obviously established in pretty much the first thing that David does, apart from play the harp, which is really worth thinking about, incidentally, aside, playing the harp, making music, writing and singing psalms is really important. First Samuel 16, he's playing the harp in the court of the king. But in chapter 17, you've got, first Samuel 17, you've got the, the David and Goliath episode. And now, now you know what's going on here, because you've got all the Philistine armies, or the, the big Philistine army and the big Philistine giant Goliath, who's massive, and he's got this big spear, and he's got this armour. Um, 1 Samuel 17, 5, helmet of bronze on his head, armed with a coat of literally scales. Um, in Texas, what animals have scales? Armadillos. I said armadillos. Armadillos, yeah. Armadillos and... Snakes. Nobody said fish. Right? Notice that, right? It's no, there's one lake, isn't there, in Texas or something? It's any size. Um, yeah, it's scales, as in what fish and snakes have. We'll come back to that in a second. We want three or four minutes, but keep it up here. So he's this massive guy with his armour and his big helmet, and he's got his spear is like a weaver's beam. It's like it's so big you couldn't pick it up. And all of the people are scared of him. So what do they need? Well, Goliath says, "You need a man. Give me a man." that we may fight. Give me a worthy opponent. And 
And so who should burst onto the scene? I'm not going to go through the whole story because you know it yourself really well. And if you haven't read this, when you finish reading Ruth, you can read this again. Um, David's kind of going backwards and forwards, taking milk and cookies to his brothers and stuff. You know. And um, he hears the taunts of Goliath. And here is one of these wonderful these moments of theological and literary genius where you hear David's first words. Now, first words of any literary character, in good literature, the first words are always very significant. I can't remember what Mr. Darcy's first words are in Pride and Prejudice, but go back and check. I bet they're significant. Jesus' first words in Mark's Gospel, the time has come. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Satan's first words. Did God really say... The first words of a person exemplify what they're all about. Satan's all about questioning God's word. Jesus is the one who fulfills everything, and it brings the kingdom of God. What's David's first words? Seventeen twenty six. David said to the men who stood by him, "What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised?" Philistine, that he defy the armies of the living God. He's this little kid. He's like 16, 17 years old, going back and forth with milk and cookies. And he's, he's disgusted by this arrogant presumption of this Philistine brute. And so he tries on Saul's armor and he's like, that doesn't fit. It's too heavy or something. And so he does his thing with his stones. And, and so what happens? Well, the entire nation is delivered by the little shepherd boy. He's probably a couple of years older than you. Because he's a conqueror. He's going to smash his enemies into pieces. And so when he's crowned, we're going to write a song for him. And the song is going to be, I love Jesus. Jesus is my... (laughs) No, it's not. It's going to be Psalm 2. It's probably a coronation psalm written for King David. That seems to be the pretty unanimous... Um, verdict of commentators. It's either written for his coronation or it's written reflecting on his coronation, given how it's used in the New Testament. Um, And I do want to spend a minute or so in this because it's really interesting because um, Psalm 2 begins with the same kind of tone of outraged amazement that David had at the rebellious nations of the world. Verse 1, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, so the living God, and his anointed, the king. So notice the Lord and his king, the son, the anointed, are kind of put in close proximity. We'll come to that in... um, um, uh, Isaiah nine in a, in a minute. Oh, we'll get back to um, we will go back to the um, the scales as well in a second. Remind me to talk about the the, the the armor, and I'll tell you why that's significant. Saying, "Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us." That is, they're imagining that the the bonds or the the restrictions that God and His King place upon them are really onerous and burdensome. Let's get off these restrictions like God's law that the anointed Christ wants to restrict us with. Let's live our own lives our own way. Then you've got pause. He who sits in the heavens laughs. 
The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, I've put my king on Zion, my holy hill. Which is to say, all you pitiful little wimpy, weedy nations shaking your puny fists at the Almighty um, need to know that there's a king in Jerusalem who's the Lord's king. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you're my son. See, so first Samuel, Second Samuel 7, you're my son. You're, you're the one on whom my favor is focused. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your inheritance, your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. This anticipates point three, king for all nations. You shall break them with a rod of iron and smash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Have you ever dropped a piece of pottery on the floor, like a tiled floor? And there's no going back, is there? You know, forget super glue. It's like... So the... the the Lord is inviting the king to, to pray, ask of me, and I'll give you the nations. So Jesus teaches us to pray. He says, just ask your heavenly father and your father will give you things. Where do you think he learned that from? We learned it from the psalm. So his father tells him, just ask and I'll give to you. And so he's teaching us, as his brothers and sisters in him, to pray the same way. We pray like Jesus did, which is why his disciples said, teach us to pray. They assumed that he knew how to. Um, so what's the smart thing to do? If you know that you're, um, you could be smashed into pieces and given to the Son as his inheritance, the wise thing to do is to be warned, O rulers of the earth, and serve the Lord with fear and kiss the Son. Two sides of the same coin. Serve the Lord, pay homage to his king, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And that blessed is all who take refuge in him echoes the beginning of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk, stand, sit, unrighteous, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. So the first two Psalms, introduction to the Psalter, which is like a summary of the whole Bible, say the blessed man is the man who kisses the Son, Psalm 2, and meditates on the law of the Lord, Psalm 1, which is what the king was supposed to do, Deuteronomy 17. You with me? Of course, the problem is the kings didn't do that. Back to the armour. So um, David relinquishes Saul's clothing, doesn't want to dress like Saul. But then after he's chopped Goliath's head, Goliath's head off, he takes his armour and does what with it? Puts it in his own tent. Yeah, well, well done, puts it in his tent towards the end of 1 Samuel 17. And we should all be thinking, David, why would you want to dress up like a snake? You've just killed the snake, Genesis 3. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent or the soldier who's dressed up like a serpent because scales. Why, would you wanna, why wouldn't you want to just burn his armour or just throw it away, like with a golden calf, grind it to powder and get rid of it? Why would you want to keep it, like some kind of souvenir? And so again, you can see, well, the king will conquer evil just as long as he's not becoming evil himself we, we, we'll have a king who can conquer all evil the moment we have a king who doesn't have a trace of it within him so second conquering evil we're right on schedule for finishing about 18 minutes past let's keep going um, so third the third element that the king brings into focus is the prerogative and privilege and responsibility of 
uh, the people of God to reach out to the nations. Now, you've seen this in the days of Abraham, and we actually hinted at this then. I mentioned 1 Kings 10. I'm going to be preaching from it on Sunday at Pastor Shaw's installation. Um, uh, Abraham was told, you'll be a father of many nations. All nations on earth will be blessed through you. Well, in 1 Kings 10, which is arguably the climax of the history of Israel, the high point of Israel's history, uh, David's son Solomon is on the throne. Queen of Sheba comes to visit. And I'm not going to spend too much time on this because time is getting short. But you notice what happens. She comes because she's heard of his wisdom. Again, more of this on Sunday. She brings um, gifts with her. And she marvels at the goodness of God that he's put such a wise anointed king on the throne and given him such wisdom to govern this people. What's starting to happen is two things. Firstly, the the blessing that God has given to Israel through the king, who is now blessed with wisdom to rule, because 1 Kings 3, where he prays for wisdom, that blessing is being shared with the nations of the world. And not just the Queen of Sheba, but um, you've got uh, Hiram, King of Tyre. You've got other kings who are mentioned um, uh, here and elsewhere who um, come to Israel during the reign of Solomon and experience something of the Lord's blessing themselves. Now, what their hearts were like, whether they were repentant, whether they were lastingly reconciled with God, I, I don't know. But they encountered something of God's goodness. And then it also works the other way. They're bringing into the Lord's house, into the Lord's kingdom, their treasures. Do you remember um, back in the Exodus when the people of Israel left um, Egypt and they were instructed to go and ask all the Egyptians for earrings and gold and stuff? And they did, and they left with this, you know, sack loads of gold, which is what they built the tabernacle furnishings out of. It's built with Egyptian gold. The sanctuary of the God of Israel is built with treasure from the nations of the world. Because all the nations of the world will bring their treasures into the house of God. That is to say, it will be used in the service of the Lord. Now this is something we have spoken about um, previously. When we talked about glory and resurrection. Remember we talked about the, the biblical teaching that in the new heavens and the new earth, all the goodness, all the created goodness that God has blessed the world with here will somehow be harvested and sort of scooped up together to be enjoyed in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, that's a, to go down that route, that will be one long rabbit trail, but you can just go back and listen to those again or just look in your Bible, your notes, or just trust me, and, or look in the Bible. Um, the, the scriptures teach that these good things, the, the things that you see around you, the relationships you have, the, the, the material blessings you have, the gifts you have, the talents you have, the things you've created, somehow will be brought into the New Jerusalem. All the treasures of the nations will be brought to him. And symbolically here, you've got a kind of pr- uh, foretaste of that with the kings bringing their gold and spices and stuff. Um, the music of Mozart. Um, the, the, the finest 
architectural and artistic and scientific achievements with which God has blessed humanity, even when he's deposited those blessings among people who don't believe in Christ, will somehow be, there's goodness there which will be scooped up and put in the service of the living God and his people forever. And the reason you know that here is because the, the temple is built with gold from all over the place. The tabernacle is built with Egyptian gold. Um, Psalm 72 says much the same thing. I, I'm going to skip over that because I want to get to Isaiah 60 because this will definitely remind you of something. Um, Isaiah 60 focuses this teaching very, very um, clearly in the place that we're now starting to realise everything is focused. Isaiah 60 um, is a a vision of of Isaiah's future and it it comes in the light of his teaching, which we're just going to get to in Isaiah 9, that the, the king who will rule, will be God, ruling as man. We'll come to that in a second. But let me just read the first few verses of Isaiah 60, uh, and you'll recognise this from New Testament quotations and um, Advent services and so on. Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. You see what's going to happen? The nations of the world will beat their plowshares into pruning hooks, as are too, Micah 4, and, and say, well, let's go, let's, go, let's go to where the Lord is worshipped and, and, and seek to live like that and to hear his law and and." Live with righteousness and seek forgiveness. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They're all gathering to you. Your sons shall come from afar and your daughters shall be carried on the hip because Abraham's going to be the father of many nations. You think your sons are all going to be descended from Abraham? No. They're going to be from all over the place. Even America and Puerto Rico and even Britain will have some sons of Abraham brought from afar to the people of God and to his king. Then you shall see and be radiant and your heart shall thrill and exult because it'll be really exciting because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. Remember, sea, nations of the world? Yeah. And the wealth of the nations shall come to you. I, I checked once to see if that phrase, wealth of nations, was where Adam Smith got the title of his book. I don't think it is because I don't think it's in the King James Version. But it is possible. I don't know where he got the title of his book from. Anyway, a multitude of camels shall cover you, and the young camels from Midian and Ephar and those from Sheba shall come. Pastor Jeffrey, why are you reading about camels in verse 6? Well, because of the second half of verse 6. They shall bring golden frankincense. Oh, come on. Can you see where... Now you look back at this from Matthew 2, and you think, so that's why they brought golden frankincense. Frankincense, why that's that for? Oh yeah, because Isaiah 60. And also because of Song of Songs chapter 3. Because there the king arrives in his chariot and is perfumed with incense and is made of gold and there's myrrh kicking around the place. That's the place where you get gold, frankincense and myrrh. Only place in the Old Testament. And it's the king arriving for his wedding. But here it's the wealth of the nations being brought 
to beautify the palace of the king. And so when this new king is born in, in Jerusalem, Israel, not Jerusalem, that's where they thought he was, in, in Bethlehem, obviously that's what the kings of the nations, the wise men, not actually kings, wise men from the nations brought to pay homage to him. I have no idea whether they knew what they were doing. I have no idea. Maybe they'd read Isaiah because Isaiah mentioned stars and they probably would have been interested in that. But I don't think they were following instructions. Maybe they were. Okay. And then finally, briefly, we've got one minute plus three minutes of overtime. Turn back to Isaiah 9. Um, and, and notice what you notice every year as Christmas approaches. Isaiah, who sees with greater depth and richness and clarity and who portrays with greater depth and certainly greater symbolic richness the future messianic kingdom of Christ. I don't think there's another book that has the... the, This is like the Old Testament revelation, book of Revelation. There's there's nothing like this, as far as I can see, that is so um, saturated with messianic hope and the beautiful complexity of rendering that hope and describing it um, in this section from Isaiah 7 onwards where you've got this little child is going to be born who's the sign to King Ahaz in chapter 7 you know the, to us a child is born that bit well that's that's picked up here in verse 6 to us a child is born to us a son is given son king we're going to have a son there's going to be a new son king the government shall be upon his shoulder because he's going to be king his name will be called wonderful counselor Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness. Psalm 72, we didn't even look at that. But from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So look at that backwards. God is going to fix this stuff up. God is going to do it. He is going to establish on David's throne a successor to David who will reign forever. And he's going to be called the mighty God. So you now know not just that the king is, when he comes, going to be central to the destiny of the people, whether it's David or Solomon or Jesus. You, don't, you know not only that he's going to conquer his enemies, you know not only that he's going to welcome all nations, but you, you know that somehow he's going to embody within himself both human rule in fulfilment of Genesis 1 and divine presence. God is going to find a way of being personally present in a man who's going to be the king of the people of God to accomplish all these things. Because he's called mighty God here. And if you need me to tell you who that is then I don't know you've not been paying attention Isaiah 45 um, quoted in Hebrews 1 you can have that um, for free to look at in your own time after you've gone home because we are out of time and um, 
I hope that has first given you a sense of how things are kind of gathering pace now with the monarchy. There's a lot of biblical material to start trying to keep tabs on. It, it seems to me reasonably um, easy to keep tabs on it up to the end of Genesis. But Moses gets a bit more complicated. David, it blows my mind. It's ev- everything gets complex. But you can see where things are going. And I hope also it's given you a sense of um, both a focus on Christ and a clearer vision of the different things Christ is going to do and is doing as the king of this kingdom, which is growing now. And from this point on, we are going to be moving with increasing clarity towards a vision of what Christ is doing now, which is what you all thought we'd be doing when we started doing eschatology. Well, we'll get there now. All right, let me pray, and then you can go. Merciful Father, you've been very gracious to us, not just this evening, of course, but in raising up Jesus, our forerunner, our elder brother, the priest and prophet and the king, to whom we look for all things. We pray that through him you would cast down all evil, welcome all nations and make your presence known with increasing uh, depth and intimacy among us. And we pray in his name. Amen. Alrighty, thank you everybody. We don't have to set up for the Oaks tomorrow because it's end of term, but Pastor Shaw... Yes, sir. Let's do that. So um, Pastor Shaw is going to just come to the front and speak into the microphone and give us a a hint about how to set up for the men's breakfast. Um, uh, Deacon uh, Robinson might have some thoughts about that as well. So thank you all. The Lord bless you and see you soon.